Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Hey there, can the relational revolution in psychology help us connect to a relational God? Can our view of relationships affect our relationship with God? Well, chances are the answer is yes, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. My name is Jeff Holsklaw, and this is the Embodied Faith Podcast, where we're trying to integrate uh, neuroscience and spiritual formation and our walk with God. Uh, and as always, we're brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which is seeking to grow faith for everyday people. And today we have a guest, Dr. Todd Hall, who is the professor of psychology at Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University. He also serves as a faculty affiliate at the Harvard Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. Dr. Hall's writing and research focuses on relational approaches to spirituality, leadership, and organizational development and flourishing. And he's actually created lots of measures for thriving and spirituality and relationships and all these types of things. It's really exciting. And I've read a bunch of his stuff. Uh, Todd, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you kind of recently wrote a book that I just pulled together a whole bunch of strands, which I just love called Relational Spirituality. Uh, and so I just want to talk through uh, the components of what you see to be relational spirituality. But before that, how did you kind of get into all this stuff. I know you're a trained therapist, a psychologist, um, but how did you become interested in relational spirituality, those two things? Yeah, well, it really goes back to my own faith journey back in college and uh, grad school. In college, I hit a period of significant spiritual dryness and uh, struggle where I just felt really distant from God, despite the fact that I was very spiritually engaged and going to church and reading scripture, doing devotions and all those things. And so I experienced this split between what I knew about God in my head and what I experienced uh, in my relationship with God. And so then I went to uh, grad school in clinical psychology. And during that time, I experienced a lot of growth through studying psychology, also through my own therapy. And I realized during that time that a lot of the emotional pain from growing up in a dysfunctional and broken family was impacting my experience of God and my, and my spirituality. And so it was really during that time that I came to, to believe and see that spiritual growth is all about relationships, growing in love for God and others. And because of that, uh, psychology and growing emotionally and in relationships is really necessary for spiritual growth. It's an integral part of it. So I actually ended up doing my dissertation on the relationship between psychological and spiritual maturity. And so in a sense, this Relational Spirituality book is an extension of my dissertation that I did 25 years ago. Okay. We need to back up because you said that your spiritual journey and your faith actually grew because you studied 
studied psychology. Most people think that psychology will ruin your faith. It will demystify all the spiritual matters. And it's those atheists that are coming for religion. But that didn't happen for you? No, no, that did that didn't happen. And I think what? part of that <laughs> what? Yeah, there is yeah, I'm there's just a lot kidding, of, of course. Right. About um the role of psychology in spiritual growth, as you know, there's there's some uh people who leaders who hold that psychology really shouldn't have a place and that scripture is totally sufficient for what we need to grow uh spiritually. I think part of that really comes down to how you understand and conceptualize spiritual growth or sanctification. And and that's really what I'm trying to talk about in the book is that, mm. like I said, that if spiritual growth is really all about relationships, and I think there's a scriptural basis for that, that I try to lay out in the book, then psychology helps us to understand uh, how we grow in, again, love for God and others. Yeah, excellent. Well, then, so let's just be specific then. What do you mean, just briefly overview, by relational spirituality? Why do you have to add relational as a modifier to this idea of spirituality? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, the term relational spirituality refers to a broad model or paradigm that I'm trying to develop in the book, a uh, paradigm of spiritual transformation. And it's based on the basic idea that human beings are fundamentally relational, that that's what it means to be created in the image of God. And that spiritual growth, again, is all about relationships, growing in love for God and others in the context of community. And that this is a relational goal and a relational process. And so, um, yeah, so that's, you know, I think what the term is, is getting at there, Jeff. And then to contrast it with something you mentioned, uh, overly rationalistic views of spirituality. So how would a relational spirituality be different and hopefully better than just a rationalistic kind of view of spirituality? Right, right. So what I mean by a rationalistic view is um, a view that actually goes way back to the early church, and I trace this uh, in chapter one of the book. And so it's this basic approach that holds that if we just acquire enough knowledge about God, meaning conceptual or what I call explicit knowledge about God, that that will automatically lead to spiritual growth and maturity. There was a recent study on of the state of discipleship that actually talks about this and concludes that, that there's an assumption that the appropriation of biblical knowledge will by itself lead to spiritual maturity. And that's exactly what I'm, right. what I'm getting at. And I think there's a growing recognition that that model is, um, is truncated. And it's not that we still need conceptual and explicit knowledge of God and scripture, but it's got to be integrated with uh, what I call relational knowledge, you know, with our heart, essentially, with our experience. Mm-hmm. So then what is, what is the difference between uh, explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge or head knowledge and heart knowledge is sometimes we talk about or in other episodes of this podcast, you know, left brain knowledge, explicit knowledge and right brain kind of relational knowledge. And we don't have to agree on all those different things. But what what do you see as that kind of the, the differences and why does it matter for spirituality? Yeah, right. Explicit and implicit. <clears throat> Definitely. So, yeah. So the idea is that there's these two basic uh, distinct ways of knowing. And, you know, we experience this all the time. Uh, really, and I mentioned the split, you know, I experienced in my own life of, you know, what I knew about God and what I experienced with God relationally. And so, you know, this is something that I've seen in my own life and working with clients and students, you know, for, for many years that oftentimes there's this uh, split and, um, you know, where we see these two different ways of knowing. There was a, you know, one example is a, a gal I interviewed for a research project and she was you know, a young woman who was very spiritually engaged, much like I was, um, 
mentored by, you know, leaders in her youth group. And yet she got to a point where she went through what she called an empty and dark period. And that went on for five years. And she said that Mm -hmm. she got to a point where it came to a head and she at a camp really just cried out to God and said, God, maybe you gave up on me. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe I did something wrong and you, and you left me. And so the question we're trying to address here is, you know, how does somebody who knows so much about God, at least for their level of development, feel so far away from God? And the answer is, you know, these two ways of knowing that they are distinct. So explicit knowledge is really, um, you know, conceptual knowledge. It's things we know about God. Uh, it goes by a lot of different names, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Jeff. Uh, and and it's important, but it doesn't directly drive how we experience relationships and how we experience ourselves. And so this other kind of knowledge is what I call relational knowledge, more specifically implicit relational knowledge. And that's an experiential form of knowing in relationships. It's also referred to as personal knowledge or tacit knowledge, experiential knowledge, gut level knowledge, intuitive knowledge, lots of different names. Um, But implicit relational knowledge is really an internal code, if you will, or wiring that tells us how to relate to others in order to maximize our sense of connection. And it's based on previous experience in close relationships. And so that kind of ties in with attachment theory, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. But because it drives really how we experience God and others and relate, it's you know critical for spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. So some would say like uh, explicit knowledge is knowledge that you kind of recall from your mind and it's things you kind of think about uh, or I've learned had a process of learning that you can kind of point back and say, Oh, I went to seminary and that's when I learned this, or, you know, I, I read that blog, I read this book and that's where I learned this knowledge. So it's, it's a much more, uh, uh, yeah, specific articulate kind of knowledge, but then relational knowledge or implicit knowledge, uh, it can feel like it kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, or right. you just have a sense of things, uh, like you said, in the gut then. So it's, not in the head. It's like it, you feel it in your body, you know, intuition, maybe some people call. So it's all these different kind of things, but it, it, it kind of, it's very in the moment um, mm-hmm. rather than like in the future or in the past or these types of things. So right. then why does that distinction, um, why is that helpful for understanding spirituality then? Yeah. Again, it goes back to the idea that this is what actually derives how we relate to others and to God, because it it's processed automatically. Uh, it's outside of conscious awareness, um, and and it actually drives how we relate. And so, what happens is, you know, to tie it into attachment uh, theory is, you know, people who are, you know, what we call attachment figures, so caregivers, right, parents, parental type figures, uh, those experiences get internalized in this form of implicit relational knowledge. And then they form a, they they sort of shape and influence how we experience ourselves, what we might call the implicit self, and how we relate to others. And again, they do this outside of conscious awareness. So so that's why it's critical for spiritual growth is because that's what's driving the show in a sense. Um, You know, another way to think about it, Jeff, is if, you know, when there is a, ideally they're integrated, right? But Mm -hmm. there's often a split. We live in a fallen world, right? (laughs) And so when there is a split, and again, you you know a lot of things about God, but in your heart, in your gut level knowledge, you you have these experiences that tell you, for example, you know, with clients I've worked with, for example, who experience you know a lot of challenges, 
uh, emotional pain, maybe trauma sometimes. And so that gets internalized. And then they expect God and other important people in their life to relate to them in the same way. Mm-hmm. But that's at a, it's a subconscious level. It's not something, it's not something that exists in, you know, ideas in their head. And so it drives out the experience. So, so that's what we're really trying to get to and change in spiritual growth. So it's like, uh, I know in my head because I've read the Bible and listened to countless sermons that God loves me and he forgives me. Uh, but in my body, uh, I really know, you know, at a deeper level, I know that God's actually disappointed with me or he's always watching me into, you know, just trying to jump on me right when I mess up and he's really ashamed of me. Right. So we have all these other messages that live inside, beyond and underneath kind of our explicit messages. And so some people call these, uh, it, you know, like internal working models, you said in an internal code that kind of happens automatically or like, um, an operating system. So, you know, some people have Microsoft and other people right. have Apple and some people have, uh, Android phones and other people have iPhones, right? So we have these different internal operating systems. And so attachment theory kind of talks about different styles, different attachment styles or different internal working models or different operating systems, if we want to use that language. Right. How do these different attachment styles, like what are they? And then how might they, uh, and I secretly, I'm hoping to have you on again to talk about this a lot, but a little to, bit yeah. uh, at a high level, uh, what are these attachment styles? Yeah, yeah. So at a high level, so first of all, I think it's important to say that our, you know, so I call them attachment filters because they they filter ah, right. bias, you know, how we, and shape how we experience people in relationships. Uh, but in attachment theory, they're called internal working models. And, you know, what's interesting is this idea shows up in a lot of different theories and it has different names, schemas, mental models, you know, things like that. And they're, each of us has u- unique attachment filters because we have a unique relational history. So, uh, you know, that's important to recognize. Um, you know, when you get to know somebody better, the the, the broad patterns start to you know, become more clear and you get more nuance, right, on, on their relational history and their attachment filters. But as you mentioned, you know, research has kind of established that there are four broad patterns or attachment tendencies or styles they're sometimes called. So there's uh, secure, which is kind of the, the main positive one. And so there's a psychologist named Diana Foshe who refers to this as feeling and dealing. Um, and so this is basically, you know, an internalized uh, sense that, caregivers are going to be available and responsive and attuned uh, to you um, because they have been in the past. So they're, they're going to be um, there's going to be emotional security there. There's going to be, you know, safety or felt sense of safety and also companionship. Um, So that's secure attachment. And then there's preoccupied. There's several kinds of what are called insecure attachments. So there's several subgroups of those preoccupied attachment is when the attachment system becomes hyperactivated. And that's a strategy um, to, maintain some kind of connection that was learned in early childhood and uh Fosha calls this feeling but not dealing so there's a lot of emotion people with, who are operating in this operating system as you put it um, <clears throat> Jeff tend to um, have a lot of anxiety and and be sort of uh, clingy because there's a, a real fear of abandonment right there's this mm. expectation at a gut level that people are going to leave and so they have to hyperactivate their need to get people to stay Then there's dismissing attachment, which is sort of the opposite of preoccupied, where the attachment system is kind of shut down or deactivated. Um, So dealing but not feeling. And so um, we think that comes from, you know, when caregivers are consistently unavailable. And so people learn to be self-sufficient and to not 
really experience their emotional needs for for their caregivers and, and to not express those. And then there's a type called fearful or sometimes disorganized, and those are slightly different. They come from different ways of measuring attachment. Um, but uh, that that would be when the caregivers are either frightened themselves or scary to the to the child. Um, and so that's sometimes called fright without solution mm-hmm. and just leads to a lot of, you know, disorganization in their uh, relationships. So then how do these, uh, how could these attachment filters then um, affect our spirituality or our relationship with God? You know, we learn all these things uh, because these attachment filters, uh, they they give us kind of a unique sense of self, uh, of our relationship with others and what can be expected of the world. So people with more secure attachment have kind of a high level of confidence in their own ability and agency as a, as a person. They have kind of a, a, a higher view of, of other people that they're helpful and generally, you know, particip- helpful participants in the world and in the view of the world that, the, you know, things will turn out uh, in the long run that good things kind of outweigh bad things or something like that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we could kind of nuance all these, but you know, the insecure attachments have all sorts of different views of the, themselves, others in the world um, that also affect. And God kind of comes into that as well as right. church and, and spiritual relationships. So I just threw a bunch of other stuff out there, mm-hmm. but, uh, but how do you, how have you seen uh, these attachment filters then work uh, in relationship to God or, or other spiritual matters? Yeah, yeah. So they they tend to play out um, in the sense that people who have <clears throat> so this is something you know I mentioned I experienced this in my own life and saw ways that my own background kind of impacted my experience of God, and and really started to, when I started to do clinical work in therapy, I started to see this uh, you know pretty much to a person, and that led me to to do research on this. Uh, and so you know with clients, I would see that clients who had experienced you know, maybe, maybe they have a dismissing attachment and they're, and they're shut down and people have not, caregivers have not been there for them, not been available. They, you know, regardless of what they know in their head about God, they at a gut level expect God to relate in the same way and to not be there for them. And the same with preoccupied. They would tend to, if they had that sort of attachment style as a predominant tendency, they would tend to experience a lot of anxiety in their relationship with God. And sometimes you have to dig a little bit to get to that. Uh, but it was, you know, it's always there under the surface. And, and research really confirms that as well. When we look at research on how human attachments relate to God attachment, uh, they, they do tend to correspond when we get down to the experiential level. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have a great couple uh, articles that explain all of that at a very technical level, which I, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So if we've talked about uh, the difference between implicit and explicit knowledge of these relational filters and how they connect with God. Um, we haven't talked so much, you know, about kind of our emotional life and how important that is, or just how we're made to connect. You're right. So you, there's no such thing as an individual. The, there's always a we before me and these types of things. Right. Right. So if, if we have all this kind of in mind that, you know, that we've learned from neuroscience and psychology, how does that help us learn about transformation? Then, how do people change spiritually, but also relationally, mm-hmm. if it's not just more knowledge? Then, then what right. do I do? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's kind of the $64,000 question, right? Out of the thing. So, <laughs> what? I, mean, <laughs> I thought you were going to give us the answer. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's a difficult process, but I think that, you know, first of all, to back up, what's the, the frustration that we often experience and that people often experience in the church is 
lack of immediate results for the mm-hmm. effort we put in, right? So I'm sure you've seen this in your work. I've seen this in the church and with my clients, right? It's like we put in our own lives, right? We put the effort in, we're reading scripture, we're learning things about God, we're attending church, and yet there's these struggles that continue, right? That are at a deeper level. And and that gets frustrating. And so, you know, and that's understandable. And I think that's part of what I'm trying to explain in the book to help people understand that spiritual growth is, it's not a linear process. It's a messy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-linear process. And so, you know, I think, so part of it's understanding the nature of this deeper kind of, you know, what I call transformational change in the book. And that's partly understanding the goal again is to change our attachment filters, to change the implicit self, if you will, how we experience God and others at a deeper level and to, for that to become more secure, you know, as you described so well with the secure attachment to develop this more internalized sense that, that I'm loved by God, not just that I know it up here, right. But that I actually experience love from God and that that helps me, you know, to love others. One of the phrases I use in the book to capture that is that we are loved into loving, that we don't become loving and grow in love just through head knowledge. That's part of the picture, but we have to experience this, um, you know, with God and with other people. So that's part of it is understanding the goal. And then, as I just mentioned, understanding that it's, it's a winding journey, right? It's not, it's not a linear process where you just put two units of effort in and then boom, you're going to get immediate results, right? So you have to, when you're not seeing those results, you have to keep at it and know that the the little changes you might see are going to add up. And at some point they're going to coalesce and you'll get these tipping points, what I call spiritual tipping points where things mm. deep inside shift. And when you don't see the change happening, there's, there's still things happening below the surface. So that's important to, to remember. But, you know, I think the basic answer to your question, Jeff, how does this happen? It happens through new loving relational experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the direct code, if you will, that leads to change and transformation. And conceptual knowledge is part of that picture. Now, how does that play out? What's the, you know, mechanism for that? Well, there's two, um, you know, really it's these two ways of knowing I've talked about bringing them together, right? They have to be integrated. So that's what I call the knowledge spiral. And so there's sort of two aspects. If you can picture there's sort of a top down integration and then there's a bottom up integration. So the top down integration is what I call feeling an idea. So, you know, theology ideas, right? About God, God's truth. Those are all really important. They provide a moral compass, right? They provide direction, uh, for us, but they need to be integrated into our implicit self again, into our gut level uh, knowledge. We need to feel or experience God's truths. And one of the main ways that happens is through story. Story, through story, an idea becomes fused with our emotions and our implicit knowledge and transforms it. So there's a, a screenwriter named Robert McKee that you may have heard of that I love his writing and he wrote a book called Story um, on screenwriting. And he he says the exchange between artist and audience um, expresses idea directly through senses and perceptions, intuition, and emotion. So, and he calls this aesthetic emotion, which is this really interesting concept. It's a more structured form of implicit knowledge. So, you know, telling our story in spiritual community, hearing sure. other stories really helps these ideas to sink down. And, and I'm sure you're aware of that as you preach, right? You're trying to take these ideas and help them sink down and integrate into people's hearts and emotions, right? So that's the top down. And then there's this bottom up, right? So we start with new experiences, like I said, of God and others that, you know, really challenge these 
um, these in, internal working models, these deep gut level expectations we have, right? So when a person expects that um, <clears throat> you're, you know, you're going to eventually leave, you're going to blow them off, you're not going to ultimately care, you know, and then you actually do follow through and and show compassion, right? And that's a new experience. And so that mm-hmm. relational experience shifts, you know, the the tectonic plates, if you will, under the surface. So that's kind of the first step. But then the next step is to interpret this experience. So I call the bottom-up integration interpreting our experience. And that's translating that into words and images. And that's a core part of psychotherapy and any growth, really mentoring, you know, any kind of growth. It's not, it doesn't just happen in psychotherapy, but it is a core part of psychotherapy. And what that does is it, it helps to crystallize the change that's happened at this deep gut level, because, you know, now we can put it into words and we can sort of hold this experience out in front of us and we can look at it and we can analyze it a little bit and talk about it and um, have a little more focus and be a little more precise uh, with it. So, um, and, and all that I think, you know, happens in the context of spiritual community as well, but it's this integration of these two ways of knowing. Excellent. I'm just taking notes here. I, was <laughs> like, I like this. Um, so all this is to kind of shift the topic a little bit is what you're saying is both for this kind of top-down uh, feeling the idea that happens through uh, new relational experiences and the bottom-up interpreting of an experience also happens through concepts that you receive in community through uh, relationship with other people. So it's all relational. So spirituality is really not uh, an individual sport. You know, it's not like golfing where it's like, I just need a couple better clubs and I need to like swing better. I need to work on my putting game or my, or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just me and God and I'm overcoming, you know, the, the rough terrain, or it's not Mm -hmm. just like tennis where I'm just like battling the devil or the flesh or whatever you want to call it. Right. But it, it seems like it's much more of a team sport that you're actually doing these things together. That's that human life and therefore spiritual life is inescapably a communal relational kind of life. Is that right? Or how would you fill out that kind of team aspect? Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, Jeff. It is a team sport. It's, you know, and that's, I think something that we really struggle with in, you know, kind of a Western individualistic um, culture uh, <clears throat> here that we tend to really, you know, <clears throat> view things in a very individualistic way. And if I'm not getting what I need out of church, I leave, right? And go find somewhere else where I can be entertained and get my needs met and those sorts of things. So I think um, it really does happen in a community. And, you know, one of the concepts I talk about in the book to try to explain, help us understand spiritual community and how to be more intentional about it is the idea of an authoritative community. And so that's a mm. social science concept that's really interesting. It's based on uh, the idea of uh, authoritative parenting. And the basic idea is that it, this type of parenting and community in this case um, blends or integrates warmth on the one hand and moral structure on the other hand. And so these are communities that are multi-generational. There's some sort of vision of the good life, which obviously as Christians we have, right? And that that vision of the good life gets internalized in the community as we, you know, not just through teaching, that's part of it, but as we do life together in community and we deal with issues that come up and we deal with conflict and we relate, we, we internalize, um, you know, these values and this, you know, vision of life. And so that's what scientists call the moralization of attachment. So mm. we become symbolically attached to leaders and to the community and we internalize these. And, you know, so an example of this, Jeff, is when I was in high school, I went to a, a church that 
I think did a pretty good job of this. It was a smaller church, about 200 people. And so I really knew, you know, pretty much everybody in the church and the, and the older people, and they knew me. And I was pretty close with the youth pastors. And, you know, one occasion, my youth pastor got into an argument with his wife, and that led to them canceling a, a youth event. And instead of just sort of hiding that, right, he talked about it in an open and appropriate way with, you know, some of the leaders in the youth group and shared what had happened and talked about the repair and how he'd apologized. And so I really, I saw this moral structure lived out as well as the warmth and forgiveness, you know, and there were other issues that came up in the church where I saw the moral structure as well, that um, out of love, you know, that there were some behaviors and things that were, that were not okay. And, and there, it was sort of, you know, um, truth and truth and grace, you know, combined is another mm. way to talk about it. So yeah. I think that helps us to think about, you know, what we need to be intentional about in communities is the, the warmth and connection, but also the moral structure. And, and they're never separated. They're always, you know, together. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what would you, so you mentioned uh, kind of that and the, the, the role of role models, how, what are some other kind of ways that a relational spirituality kind of paradigm can help us rethink spiritual formation in churches and parachurch organizations or college ministries and youth ministries and things like that? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, so as you know, we, we tend to do pretty well with the explicit knowledge, with the teaching, right? And if you mm-hmm. think about the typical, you know, uh, worship service, there's a lot of time focused on the sermon and explicit teaching. And that's that's good. There's a There's a place for that as well as worship. But I think we need to balance that with a focus on facilitating an environment where there are relational experiences that can, you know, bring this transformation that we've been talking about, um, about in people's lives. And so part of that, I think is small groups and, you know, there are a lot of churches that do pretty well at that, but I think there does need to be a focus on smaller groups that are sustained over time where some of these attachment issues can start to come to the surface really mm-hmm. and be experienced and be talked about and dealt with and that kind of thing. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is a social scientist named Robin Dunbar who talks about the sizes of groups. And we need to be intentional about uh, group sizes that, that once we get beyond, you know, 150 people, he says, we really can't develop meaningful relationships. So I think, um, so he talks about several tiers, like an inner tier of up to about five people and then a next level tier that's maybe five to 15 um, and then 15 to 150, you know. So I think we need to be intentional about these smaller groups where people can really get to know each other and develop some attachment and deal with some of those issues and work through conflict and, you know, develop unity, even when there's different views uh, and that kind of thing. So I think that's um, one of the, one of the big takeaways from this model, I would say for churches. Sure. So we have to have a really rich relational fabric in our churches so that there can be the kind of the up and down processing of feelings and ideas and emotions and experiences. Definitely. Yeah. But too often, you know, churches and pastors and, you know, I teach theology, right. Where, you know, we just feel like, well, if we give people better ideas, then that'll just straighten out how their body feels. It'll straighten out how they spontaneously react to stressful situations. It'll somehow, Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden fix, you know, this implicit knowledge about God's, dis- their feelings of God being disappointed with them. No, no, God doesn't. See, look here, you know, here's a Bible verse to remember. And, and, and those things are not wrong. They're just not enough for sure. Exactly. <clears throat> right. They're, they're very important, but again, they have to be integrated. Yeah. And I think that, that leads to a good point. And I, that's part of the goal with the book is I think there needs to be more training of leaders in the church on a relational spirituality type of model 
so that they understand exactly what you're just saying, right? That yes, we've got to teach and there's got to be the moral compass, but we've got to understand that, you know, somebody who walks through our church doors, who's got, you know, mental health issues, which as you know, are on the rise and has experienced a lot of pain in their background. There's, there's going to be a lot of issues there and that's going to take time and patience and relationship, right. To mm-hmm. transform that. And, and like we said, it's a messy process and that can be overwhelming and, and can lead us to feel kind of helpless. Um, but I think understanding that uh, and some training and th- these, uh, you know, this, this model can help us to do a better job of that in the church. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Where can people uh, kind of find you or follow you or you have a. Yeah. So they can, you can find me at a um, couple websites, drtodhall.com, probably the easiest one. And then there's a site with the spiritual assessment tools that you mentioned called uh, spiritualmetrics.co. Um, so you can see uh, some of those and can, that people can contact me through either, either one of those sites. All right. I'll try to get those in the show notes. Spiritual, what'd you say? Spiritual metrics? Spiritualmetrics.co. Co. Got it. And then drtodhall.com. Excellent. Well, as always, you can find uh, this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts on Spotify, on iTunes, uh, and other kind of places. Also on uh, YouTube, if you just look at my name, Jeffrey Holsklaw, Jeff with a G. Um, Well, Todd, thanks again, and I would love to have you on again sometime. Would love to be on. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you. 